If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 6. 1 John and chapter 6. Chapter 5, sorry. Whew, that was a test. There were a few people wondering for a minute. With your Bibles open, beginning in verse 5, if you would stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father, we come in Your presence today thankful for Your grace. Thankful for these words. Thankful for the power that You have demonstrated throughout the centuries in preserving Your Word for Your people. And so we come here today, give us hearts that hunger, and would You inscribe upon our hearts the reality of what John is here speaking by Your Spirit. Would You help us to behold the mysteries of Your glory? And Father, might we worship You in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come today to a transitional section of Scripture. John has been telling us how to overcome. And that is that we can overcome only in Christ Jesus. That knowing Him is the victory. Now keep in mind that John is one who always is constantly taking truth and holding it before us. And he knows that we will forget certain things. And so here, he tells us again throughout the letter that there are certain things that are essential to the Christian life. And we must hold on to them and walk in them and practice them if we are going to live in a way that is well-pleasing to God. That these four things we've said are love for God, a guarding, a keeping of His commandments, love for the brethren, that is love for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a love for correct doctrine, especially as it relates to the person and the work of Christ. John has been swirling around these truths continually from the very beginning of this letter. He keeps coming back to love God, love the church, love sound doctrine, especially as it relates to Jesus, and keep His commandments. That is the message that we hold as a church. 
There, is, there, there are no other regulating truth. This is what is really important, is what John is saying. Now, in dealing with the doctrine of the commandments and the keeping of the commandments, he puts it in terms of first being in Christ, and then you will be one who overcomes the world, and you will not love the world, but rather you will find that the commands of God are not burdensome, but rather they are an encouragement. He's arrived here then as further evidence of our overcoming the world, that we will regard the person and the work of Christ with utmost reverence. And it will matter in our churches who we say the Lord Jesus Christ is. Again, he's been talking about overcoming the world, and so he drives yet again at this foundation. If overcoming the world rests in our knowing Christ, then what John is saying, you better know that foundation well. You better doctrinally define Jesus with great clarity. You you, you must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If this Jesus is the foundation of your joy, and He is, then you want that foundation right, otherwise there will be disastrous effects downstream. And so what he's doing from verse 6 right on until verse 12 is he's really concerned about the doctrine of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately what he's telling us is if if you have any doubt at all about Jesus, if, if you're struggling in your joy, you need to come back to the centrality of who Christ is. You need to be absolutely certain about what He has done for you. The entire Christian position rests on Christ. You see, we're not just deists. We're not individuals that just believes that there's a God. We're not individuals that vaguely talk about the big fella upstairs. To us, as Christians, the central reality is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The triune Godhead, really. The thing that makes the Christian a Christian is that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The the New Testament has no other hope for you this morning. If you find yourself in a... And we sang this this morning. Do we feel that the world is broken and it's groaning? And the absolute answer from every human heart should be yes. And if you're here this morning with that reality on your mind, the New Testament has no other solution for you other than the Son of God has come to redeem His people. Christ is really our only hope in life and death. The whole Bible in reality points to Him. And John knows because this is so utterly simple and because we are so utterly fallen, That if he doesn't mention it again, we'll forget the centrality of Christ. This is the way that he began the letter. But if John is not a good shepherd, if he doesn't camp and live on the reality of who Jesus is, and even those who believe that He is who He is, will forget the centrality of this message. John knows that a thousand heresies await the church. And they will ultimately try to undermine uh, the person and the work, the sufficiency of Christ. The world really does lie in the power of the evil one. And without firm rooting in Christ, there is no hope. 
The sufficiency of Christ in the face of an evil world really is the theme of verses 6 through 12. He is leaning in again, reminding us, Beloved, I'm writing these things for your joy. And if I can, we could take these particular verses and break them down into three major divisions. The verses 6 through 8 really are a testimony of Christ in his person and his work. And verses 9 and 10 uh, answer the question why we should accept this testimony. And then verses 11 and 12 tell us of the consequence of our having accepted by grace this testimony. So what we are dealing with, not just today, and we're not going to get through everything today, but what we're dealing with is the doctrine, is our Christology, the doctrine of who Christ is and what He has done for us. But before we can dive into this, the details of the, this section and the testimony regarding Christ and why we can trust Him and why He is our only hope, We have to face something else. And I have to be honest with you, I don't want to spend time on what we're going to spend the bulk of our time discussing. I don't want to even bring it up. And in fact, there are many people who would encourage me, Jay, just don't talk about it. Just read the text and run. Because you may cause a fight in the church. I believe that we um, can work through difficult problems that we face as Christians, intellectual problems, things that... Uh, rise up from the reality of what we experience in this world and questions about our faith. And, and, and so I'm going to deal with this because I think if we're going to deal intelligently as Christians, we have to deal with these questions. I want to start here. Friends, I hope that you understand that not only I, but I believe the bulk of those who are members of this congregation have a utmost high regard for the reverence of God's Word. Every word matters, doesn't it? We are thankful for the Word of God. And I, I believe that, that God, as I prayed this morning, has preserved His Word such that no meaningful doctrine is lost or destroyed. And such that we have, we can trust that this, regardless of what version of the Bible you're holding this morning, that that we as English-speaking people are blessed of all the earth to be able to have a Bible in our hands that we can trust. I shouldn't be so broad as to say every translation. If you have an NASB, an NET, an ESV, a KJV, an NKJV, a BLT, I'm just kidding. If you have those core translations, those are great translations. There are a lot. If, you, if it falls outside of that, come forward afterwards if you want to and we can talk. Um, but we are blessed to have a lot of really erudite uh, a translation, translations. And so we're thankful that God has preserved His Word. And I want you to understand that this is a difficult thing to wrestle with. Um, and we may even disagree. But I owe you in that disagreement my intellectual honesty in my understanding. The issue is flatly this. If you are holding a King James Version of the Bible this morning, there is a significant difference in that older English translation from the more modern ones. The uh, KJV reads thus, 4 in verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 
The ESV, the NASB, the, the net translations render that verse, for there are three that testify. Now that's a significant textual variance. That, that is a, a major difference. And so we have to wrestle with that because I know there are some of you in here who primarily use the KJV and, and I'm not against you. Um, but we do have to deal with this. So, so why the difference? And the difference comes down to something that is known in scholarly circles as textual criticism. And if you're like me and you hear that word for the first time, juxtaposed to your Bible, there's something in you because you love the Word of God that goes, uh-uh. No, I'm not having that. And quite frankly, I'm thankful for that impulse in most Bible-believing people because this is the Word of God. Here is the crux of the issue. Here is the fulcrum of why there are textual variants and why we have to deal with them. And we can take a position that we just should stick with one English translation of the Bible or we can even take the same kind of argumentation that people use in that and and apply it to we should stick with uh, one underlying manuscript of the Bible. And and many faithful men uh, do take that position. And I'm not against them necessarily. But here is the crux of the issue. We all believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. That is, that God breathes through His prophets and apostles the words that we have. And our understanding, my understanding of that doctrine, is that we believe that as the author wrote, God gave the words. That's very simplification. So that original first manuscript that was written is ultimately inspired of God. But we don't have that original manuscript. We don't. We don't have the original. And and friends, you can come and talk to me about this later. I'm open to discussion about this. But we don't have that original manuscript in our possession. So what that lends to in the world are people who say, well, because you don't have the original, you can't trust the veracity of the Bible that you're holding in your hand. You can't trust that people haven't added to or taken away what you are receiving as the very words of God. Therefore, your faith is built on something that is shaky. But in God's providence, it's almost like He knew that argument was coming. And the way in His providential uh, working that He has preserved His Word is not necessarily by um, maintaining the original first copy document, the physical first copy that was written. The way that He has preserved His Word for you and I is that there are a multitude of copies of what was written. There are myriads of, trans, uh, of transcripts. There are, uh, there are countless numbers of these trans- transcripts, and there's a whole argument and a discussion to be had there, but I know I'm, 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 I'm probably boring a number of you 
Anyway, so we're not going to go into all of that. The way that God has chosen to, to show the veracity of His Word is that we can look at so many copies of the text, and if people were adding here and there, somewhere along the line, that is going to show up because there are so many different copies of the text. And that is really the discipline of textual criticism. Now, I want to be clear this morning. You owe no one your absolutely unskeptical reception of their textual criticism of God's Word. If someone ever suggests that we take a different view of a particular verse, they are the ones that have to show the reason and the proof in my opinion. And so when people often, I get uncomfortable when people will ask me, what do you think about textual criticism? My answer is, what I want to say is book, chapter, and verse. And then give me a week to think about it and study. Because we've got to, this is God's Word. And it deserves our reverence. It does not deserve our trite, flippant, join my club, be on my translation kind of attitude. And friends, I just want to tell you, I believe that there are textual critics who are doing good work that really come under the weight of the Word of God and, and they, 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 they do their job. This is the, the, the major difference for me. And it's hard to know when you don't know the people. I would never trust anyone to dive into the work of textual criticism if there is not fear and trembling in their heart. If they are not aware of the reality of what they are setting themselves to. What a fearful task it is. Ultimately, textual critics, what they do is they compare all of these manuscripts that we have. And they will, they will point to areas where the manuscripts have have a variance, that where there's a, a, a difference in the text. And, and what they do is they often will give more weight to the earlier manuscripts, giving a probability that if there is something that is in the newer manuscripts, it was not actually part of the original text. That is the line of thinking. And so I want to boil that down to this particular verse. In this case... And I verified this through several sources, prayed about it this week. In this case, manuscripts prior to, and there's a, another argument here, either the 10th or the 14th century, but everyone would agree, at least the 10th century, every manuscript before that first thousand years of the church does not bear out what the King James Version has. Uh, the, the encapsulation of the Trinity is really, what the KJV is doing is it is putting in explicit terms the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm a Trinitarian. And if you come at me saying, see, you're, 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 you're dabbling in something that will lead us down a direction of denying the Trinity, you're wrong. I, I just don't believe that. And, and here's what I want to say to you. If, if you hold the, these, that that should remain, you and I don't have a fight. Because I believe that the Trinity is part of what God's Word has for us. But here, many of the manuscripts that are older show that this was 
in all likelihood, not part of the original verse. The overwhelming scholarly opinion is that. And here's the reality. I believe that these are people, by and large, that want to live under the weight of the authority of God's Word. Their goal is not to critique the text. Their goal is to know what did the original say. That is the goal. Um, Now, again, some people will hold the opinion that any textual analysis is wrong. and, And some will argue for specific segments of uh, the copies being more valuable than others, and all of those arguments are... I'm I'm open to discussion in all of those things, but I, I want to remind us of Revelation chapter 22, the closing verses here, what is written. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy in this book, so this really here, if anyone adds to them... God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now here's the reality. We have to face a world that is in the power of the evil one, don't we? And there is just as much a reality that people might add to the word of God and sometimes, even maybe helpfully so, or thinking they're helping. Now, I just want the Trinity to be clear in this text, if that is in fact what happened. And in fact, in, in verse 7, uh, just sorry, I know I'm giving you a lot of detail, and I feel like I'm stoking an argument here, and I don't intend that. I just want to be clear with you. But most of the copies that we have after the 14th century actually have that encapsulation of explicitly putting the Trinity there as a marginal note to the text. And then as we move on, we see it kind of sliding into the manuscript. So so it doesn't appear potentially, I I can't answer this definitively, but even that the original person that might have done this intended to change anything. It could have been something that was written to the side. All of this is going somewhere, so hang with me. Um... I just want us to level with the fact that we live in a broken world, but we have a good God. And I want you to wrestle with the reality that people will try to add to the Word of God. I promise you today, I am so thankful that the woke mob doesn't have the ability to annotate my Bible. And the woke mob is just a new manifestation of an old problem. And that is that we see suffering in the earth and we think our joy can be fixed our way. Right? And so we have to level with the fact that there may be textual variants. Now we have some ways we can handle that. We can just snub our nose at anyone who says, I will give my life to studying all of these manuscripts. And I will do it in fear and trembling to God. And we can say, or we can say, that could be helpful, but you're going to have to explain yourself when you put your hands on the Bible. You're going to have to give a reason for why you are doing this. And ultimately, I think saying 
that we have to stay with one version of the Bible or we have to look at only one particular manuscript of the Bible ultimately puts our opinion above the providential working of God. Because what we are saying is, God, what you should have done is just just, um, kept in place the original transcript or one transcript. That's the way you should preserve the Word of God. But that's not what he's done. His ways are higher than our ways. And the way that he has chosen to do this is by the proliferation of his word throughout the world in a way that we can look at all of those texts. And I can stand here this morning and say, my dear brother, sister in Christ, if you have a KJV, read on. If you have an NASB, if you have an ESV, if you have an a net Bible, read on. And there are many other Bibles that I think probably are faithful. So let me be clear. And this is where I'm going to lose everybody. Textual criticism that is good, and I'm not making the argument that all textual criticism is good, but textual criticism that is good is an honest effort to knowing originally what was written. Higher criticism is something entirely different. Higher criticism is a liberal analysis of the text to deconstruct the doctrines, to get rid of the miracles of the Bible, and to look for areas where we can critique the Word of God. Higher criticism is a school of thought started in Germany that ultimately has behind it the idea that the Bible is just another dead book like every other book that was ever written. Higher criticism does not begin with fear and trembling. Higher criticism begins with an agenda. And let me tell you something. Both a textual critic and, a higher, and, and, and those with higher criticism, if they do not have fear and trembling before God, if they come to the Word of God with an agenda, I don't trust either one of them. Right? We have to qualify there. If a textual critic wants to do good work and submits himself to the to the Word of God, that's one thing. But if he comes with a a desire to push an opinion or to drive at a theology, that's an entirely different thing. And we have to acknowledge that that may be a reality. Higher critics are always in that game of critiquing the Bible. They will deny the authorship of the books that are obvious. They will uh, deny doctrinal thrust. They will deny that this is God's Word. They dismiss the Bible as a historical uh, account. They dismiss the miracles out of hand. But the textual critic says this is the Word of God. And so again, he comes in fear and trembling and he submits himself to the text. Textual criticism leaves all of the great doctrines of the Bible exactly where they were. Higher criticism is an attack ultimately not not only upon the unique inspiration of the Bible, but on the cardinal doctrines and tenets of the Christian faith. Higher criticism is men putting their own ideas into what we should believe about the world around us and not receiving from God His Word. Textual criticism is not an analysis of the books of the Bible. It is simply concerned with comparing the text so that we can understand. Again, we should never listen to higher criticism. We should never give an audience to that kind of thinking. And so all of this is to say, I believe that I can preach Ephesians chapter, First uh, John, the First John chapter five, verse seven, out of the ESV, with absolute fidelity to what John is teaching the church. I, I believe that wholeheartedly and flat-footedly. 
And why? This is ultimately the issue. What is the thrust of what John is saying to us? We come back to the reality that John has been telling us how to overcome the world. And this textual variant doesn't ultimately undermine a belief from either version in the Trinity and because the whole letter speaks of the reality of the Trinity, and we know that John was Trinitarian in his theology, but John is driving not necessarily at a Trinitarian argument that would come later. He is driving at a Gnostic argument about who Christ was. And that's what he started at in the very first verses, and it's really where he's ending. He's speaking to the Gnostic heresy. He, he wants to come back and bring our focus to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read with me in verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Here, we have the crux of what John is ultimately dealing with. And it comes in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If we are going to overcome the world, we must know and have a strong doctrine of who Christ is. That He is the God-man. What John is doing is he is leaning into the doctrine of the Incarnation. Remember how he began in chapter 1? Let's turn back there and look. Verse 1 of chapter 1. We're taking verse 7, verse 6 and 7 in light of the context of verse 1, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The way that we overcome the world is by knowing that One. It's by having an erudite theology about the incarnation of who Christ is and that He is both God and man. Truly God, truly man. And what He is doing is leaning into the, the two natures of Christ's person and His work. He's not just backing off to the Gnostic heresies He's wanting us to understand with greater clarity that our Savior is divine. Now, the question of verse 6 is going to be this. And, and, and I know part of what you want to know is out of verses 7 and 8, these three testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three, what does that mean? Come back next week, I'll tell you. Um, but verse 6, the, the question is here, uh, what is meant by the water and the blood and everything that is in this ver verse? Well, there are many different views in this regard. There are many people who say ultimately what John is pointing to, the water and the blood, is nothing more than kind of a, a, an illustration or a word picture of the crucifixion. And what John is telling us here is what John has written in the closing of his Gospel. That the water and the blood point to the crucifixion of Christ. Ultimately, 
that doesn't necessarily seem to hold water because there's more that is encapsulated there. Then there are others who tell us that um, this reference is in reference to the two ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and to baptism. Here again is something that doesn't necessarily fit or comport with the context of what is being said because John has not just all of a sudden brought in this, the doctrine of the ordinances of the church into his argument. He's pointing back to the actual person of Jesus and to his divinity. And he's pushing against the Gnostic heresy that Jesus swooned and he wasn't actually uh, God at the point of his crucifixion. And, and, and he's pushing back against the idea that Jesus didn't have an actual enfleshed uh, body. To John here is concerned with, with really leveling at our hearts not the doctrine of the Trinity explicitly, although anytime you deal with the person of Christ, there you are, are, are obviously in that category. What John is concerned about establishing in our minds with these words are the reality of the Incarnation. Again, the reason that he's doing this is because he's writing against a heresy that said that Jesus was nothing more than a man. And then the Spirit of God came upon him at a particular time and he did wonderful things in his ministry and in his life. But then when he was nailed to that cross, it would be anathema for God to die in that way. And so the Spirit of God departed him and it was nothing more than a man that died upon the cross. And, and John says, no, no. That is not true, my friends. You must rely and rest on this reality that Jesus is both God and man. To drive a wedge between the two persons of Christ is to ultimately undo the joy of the saints throughout the church. So what he is pointing to is the reality of the Spirit and of Christ's divinity. The Incarnation is an absolute reality. And it's one of the reasons why I think, not only based off of the textual criticisms, verse 7 doesn't seem to fit that we bring in the Trinitarian argument. Because the thrust of the text isn't a Trinitarian argument. It's focused on who Jesus is. And we're going to get into more of what this means next week. But I felt like we need to deal with the textual problem and we need to see the overriding reality that what John wants us to find joy in is the joy of knowing that Christ is both truly God and truly man. And our hope should be set upon Him and on Him alone. We will see how all of the rest of this is demonstrated out uh, next week. And I want to invite you in the coming week, if you have questions about the variation in the text, if you have something you want to share with me, and I am always happy to stand in this pulpit and say what I said last week, I now disagree with. Um, but I, I want us to come to these verses uh, the reason why I've, I've, I've struggled, I'm sure you can tell, all week long with, the, with this problem. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be a, a showboat or over the top about it, but this is, is the reality. Verses 6-12 through 12 were written for our joy. And so if we don't deal with the realities that are encapsulated in this text, we're messing with the joy of the saints. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and I don't want to be guilty of that. 
So I want us to see, I want, I want us to pray through the reality of these verses is that we would understand who Christ is. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning thankful that you give us scholarly individuals who contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, we also know the reality that there are those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that there are many who try to add to or take away from your word. We don't want to fall into that camp. We give reverence to your word. And we want to have joy in the face of a dark and fallen world. Father, we want to understand the doctrines of Christ. And we want to have fear and trembling when we come before you having handled them. So Father, I I pray that we would be people as we continue to deal with these verses in the weeks ahead. That we we don't get bored. Um, that we don't just gloss over, um, but that we take these things seriously and that we ask You daily to implant in our hearts the meanings of Your words here. Um, That we can have joy regardless of the circumstances of our lives, regardless of all of the different political ideologies, regardless of all of the different theological ideologies. I pray, Father, that we would be rooted and grounded in Your Word, uh, knowing that You are ultimately... Uh, the author and finisher of our faith. We come before You this morning, Father, thanking You that we can have confidence in Your Word. That we can trust that because there are so many copies that bear out the exact same thing, that Your Word is true and that it hasn't been tampered with in large part. We're, We're thankful, Father, that not only have You given us Your Word, but You've providentially protected Your Word. Father, might we deal with problems like these with the spirit of unity, seeking to build one another up in the faith, seeking to understand Your Word with greater clarity and submit our lives in fear and trembling. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you would stand and we'll sing.